Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. I'm thrilled to have Melissa Kane Travis as our guest on today's episode. Melissa's work explores how science and faith can interact and how this intersection can lead to a deeper understanding of both. In today's episode, we will be discussing the life and work of Johann Kepler and how his faith influenced his scientific discoveries. We'll also be exploring the ways in which science and faith can converge and how this convergence can deepen our understanding of the world around us. Melissa Kane Travis is a philosopher and great book scholar with a special interest in the intersection of science and Christianity in the Western tradition. She is the author of Thinking God's Thoughts, Science and the Mind of the Maker, and a contributing author for The Story of the Cosmos. She is a fellow of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and a member of the core writing team for the Worldview Bulletin, as well as uh, the contributing writers team at Christian Research Institute. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. Just click the link in the description below to go to the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcast, so that you can get all future episodes automatically on the homepage of whatever app you use. Lastly, if you've been helped by this episode or any of our other episodes here on Filter, let me encourage you to leave us a rating and review and to share the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and also take the time to write a review on Apple Podcasts. Where if you take these simple steps, it'll only take a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Melissa Kane Travis. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Aaron. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on. Been looking forward to it. Been following your writing, uh, following you on social media for a little bit now, and uh, really enjoyed your work. So uh, I'm glad to have you on. Let's get started by telling us about, so you, you've devoted your career academically and uh, with writing and speaking to the intersection of science and faith and um, apologetics and science. What led you to where you are now uh, devoting your career to apologetics and science? Well, it's a rather long story. I'll try to summarize it shortly. I loved science as a kid, so I can remember as far back as my kindergarten classroom absolutely loving the days that we got to watch science film strips. Hmm. That's aging me, I'm sure. This was before classrooms even had a VHS VCR in them. So science film strip day was a huge highlight of my week. I loved all things about dinosaurs and volcanoes and fish, oceans, ecosystems, all the things. Just loved it so much. I grew up in a Christian home, and it wasn't until high school in public school that I started to have some questions about the harmonization of the Genesis creation narrative and the natural sciences, which I loved so much. But when I dared to ask a question about that at church... As a high school student, I was shut down rather 
quickly and not given any sort of satisfying answers. Mm -hmm. I then went off to a Christian university where I chose to major in biology with the expectation that I would do graduate studies in some branch of the natural sciences. And what was interesting about my undergraduate experience is that although I was at a Christian university studying one of the natural sciences, the issue of the harmonization of faith and science never, ever came up in a classroom in my whole four years there. The head of the biology department would often write Bible verses on the whiteboard before starting class, but there was never discussion about why he did that. So after I graduated from college, my husband and I, we were newly married, and we came to the big city of Houston, Texas, from rural North Carolina to Houston, Texas, massive culture shock. I started working at a research lab down in the giant Houston Medical Center, and this was being tossed into the deep end of the pool in, in every sense of that idea because all of a sudden I was outside of the Christian bubble that I had spent the first 22 years of my life in, and I was surrounded by co-workers of all different religious persuasions or no religious persuasion, and I had never in my life had a conversation with someone who wasn't at least a cultural Christian. Mm -hmm. And I call it my long series of humiliating events because I started trying to broach the topic of the Christian faith with various co-workers. And even the one or two I had who described themselves as Christian rejected the idea of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And I was at a loss and felt like an utter failure when it came to being able to share my faith effectively. I ended up leaving that job and going to work for a small startup biotech firm several months later. And the interesting situation there was that I was only one of two employees in the entire company. And my coworker in the lab was a young man about my age who was devoutly Hindu. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll have um, better luck one-on-one -on -one conversing about Christianity and the differences with Hinduism. And that didn't go well either. And, and to make a longer story much shorter, the Lord led me to the field of apologetics through a lunchtime trip to a Barnes & Noble bookstore. I was just browsing the bargain shelves, and lo and behold, I come across this shiny, gold-covered, hardback book by Josh McDowell called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I had no idea what apologetics was. The cover didn't even use the word apologetics. It just had a subtitle that suggested evidence for Christianity. And I had never heard of such a thing. In, mm -hmm. in all my years of life, growing up Christian, I had never heard of that. So I bought the book, $9.95, that changed my life because not only did it start equipping me to have conversations with people with other worldviews, but it introduced me to the fact that there is actually an entire academic discipline devoted to science and Christianity. And um, to clip out another long segment of the story, I ended up starting graduate school in 2009 to do my master's in science and religion at Biola University. And then after I graduated, I took one year off 
and then decided to pursue a PhD. And it was during my PhD studies that I started my teaching career at what was at the time Houston Baptist University, now known as Houston Christian University. And I taught there part-time for seven years. I'm now teaching part-time science and faith courses at the undergrad and graduate level at the Lee Strobel Center at Colorado Christian University. Awesome. Well, it's cool whenever you get to hear someone whose childhood passion actually did translate into something they do in the future. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, their childhood passion is something, you know, like being an astronaut, and they don't actually end up becoming an astronaut or anything near that. They end up working in accounting or something. Uh, but in your case, having that love and passion for science and God's created world actually turning into something that you're, you're still doing now today and very much fruit with. And so that's really cool. One of the things that you mentioned in your story that, that I've heard a lot from people uh, is wrestling with uh, how do science and faith work together. And whenever I think about that and, and how it's such a common issue that we have today, a question, a conversation that's frequently being had, you know, I wonder, is this supposed conflict between science and faith something that's unique to our culture and where we are today? Uh, or have people for centuries going back uh, in, in history uh, or in the West, like, have they struggled with that question as much? Or is there something unique in the way that we think and the assumptions that we work with today? that make those two things, science and faith, seem so contradictory and hard to fit together? Well, the complexity surrounding the answer to that question involve all sorts of things, philosophy, theology, um, politics, so on and so forth, that we can really start um, investigating, if you will, around the time that the scientific revolution was really taking off. So we were beginning to discover things about the natural world that on their surface seemed to maybe have some tension with common interpretations of scripture. So for listeners who are very familiar with the period known as the scientific revolution, you know I'm talking about the dispute over geocentrism or an earth-centered universe versus heliocentrism or a sun-centered universe. And I use the word universe because that was all the known universe at the time, uh, the sun, the earth, the moon, and then a few planets. Mm-hmm. And so we had this, what I call an apparent tension between a common interpretation of scripture about the earth resting um, and everything else rising and setting. And, uh, and so thus began our work on this harmonization process, asking, okay, where have we gone wrong? Have we gone wrong in how we're interpreting these particular passages of scripture or have we not yet reached a correct conclusion about the natural world? And then we have the whole enlightenment phenomenon when rationalism came to rule in the intelligentsia and asking questions about naturalism versus supernaturalism. And of course that plays heavily into the question of divine creation and things like the immaterial soul that we as Christians believe human beings are. 
And then, of course, in 1859, we have the advent of Darwinian theory with the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. And that introduced a whole new apparent conflict in the conversation. I'm still using the word apparent, by the way, for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. And so we have this long history of learning more about the world, developing uh, hypotheses and theories about the natural world. uh, And as starting with the scientific revolution and going forward, as the study of the natural world started to diverge as a discipline from uh, what we called back then natural philosophy, uh, we ended up having uh, these tensions between the two um, domains, if you will. And so those of uh, those of us like me who are really interested in questions about the harmonization of the Christian faith and the natural sciences, we get to do a lot of fun things like investigating the historical episodes such as the Galileo affair, such as uh, the debates over evolution in early 20th century America, uh, such as the Scopes trial that was part of that big early 20th century debate, and ask questions, um, one of the key being, is what we're seeing really a fundamental tension or conflict between central Christian doctrine and truths that science is uncovering about the world, or is or is it rather something far more complicated um, that ultimately can be uh, harmonized? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, just to tip my cards a little bit, I always go with the latter, um, and I think we can make an excellent academic case for the ultimate harmony of God's special revelation in his word and his general or natural revelation in the things that he has created. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out is this this conflict that people see and that, of course, there's arguments over between the people who land on different sides. Is it fundamentally, what's at the foundation of it? Is it fundamentally a scientific argument that we're having, or is it something that goes even deeper than the scientific arguments? Is it something that starts at the level of, of philosophy and theology? Oh, I love that question. It's much more fundamental. It goes all the way back to our basic presuppositions about reality. Is there something that transcends the material world or is there not? Is is matter the fundamental stuff of reality or is mind the fundamental stuff of reality? Um, and so you can just think for a moment how much that's going to influence every single attitude that you have towards this question if you're a supernaturalist or a naturalist. And so, yeah, it's it's really far more about the philosophical presuppositions that we bring to the table um, than it is about uh, Christian doctrine and findings of the natural sciences. Not to say that that's not a major element of it, but it's not the most fundamental thing. If we're coming at it with an open mind, with more tools in the tool chest, so to speak, uh, then we have a much better chance at reaching some good harmony between the findings of science and established central Christian doctrine. Mm. 
Yeah, because I think that one of the things that's behind the the arguments is um, is a position that tries to use science uh, in a in a way that or in a manner that it really can't be used, which is that it is um, a tool that can answer all of the questions of life. Um, and so often, what we have people do is we, we see this especially among like the new atheist crowd is trying to make philosophical statements, but uh, being said as if they're being said with the authority of science and that's not actually the case um or as or making a philosophical statement as a scientist and then that giving it some kind of authoritative credibility that you know a philosophical statement without science wouldn't have like the main thing right, that i right, think right. of that i uh, point people to is whenever carl sagan opened his tv show in his book with the statement, the cosmos is all that there ever is, was, or all that there is, was, or ever will be. And, you know, I point out he, he's presenting himself as a scientist, making a scientific statement, but he's making a philosophical statement there. He's making a worldview statement. And uh, so, yeah, I think that often Christians uh, approach this conversation uh, disarmed because the people on the other side of the debate like to set up the rules to kind of rig the game in their favor. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's just interesting to me that as much work has been done to really flesh out this dynamic, we still see popular science figures who are highly credentialed cosmologists or evolutionary biologists make those kinds of statements. I love how John Lennox puts it. He says, statements made by scientists are not always statements of science. Mm. And it seems to me that you have these brilliant men with all of these scientific credentials not understanding the proper limitations of science. And what I mean by that is they don't recognize that there are some questions that science in principle cannot answer. They instead frame it as a situation of things science hasn't yet figured out, but will someday, hopefully. Mm, yeah. um, but, but they're wrong on that. When we talk about something that science cannot answer in principle, we're talking about metaphysical issues, philosophical issues. Uh, and so it seems very intellectually irresponsible to not stop and to recognize that what we might call a, a limitation on science. I don't like to use that word because this is another huge debate in the philosophy of science. It's known as the demarcation problem. Where does science really stop um, and other things like metaphysics begin? Mm. Uh, but in the cases that I like to talk about in my field, such as the origin of the universe, um, the origin of consciousness, so on and so forth, um, there is very much a clear demarcation between what science has the tools to answer and what it never will have the tools to answer. Can you speak a little bit more to, in your view, what that demarcation is then? Oh, let's see. So when we're asking questions that are not related to things like the laws of nature, um, when we, when we are talking about things that are not matter and energy, or the dynamics involved with matter and energy, um, then we're, we're 
stepping over into a realm of metaphysics. So when we ask a question, like a very elementary question, like where did the universe originally come from? You know, we can give excellent philosophical arguments for why that is a question science can't tackle. The most it can do is talk about approximate dates of origin and what happened immediately after something came from utterly nothing. Um, but to ask about an ultimate cause of all things, um, we're asking not what were matter and energy doing back before the Big Bang, for example. We're asking what set everything in motion to begin with. Um, from a state of nothingness and timelessness. And that's very much a philosophical question that uh, science will never have the tools to answer. The best they can do is talk about, well, before that, oh, before that, and before that. Um, but you still have to deal with physics, matter, energy. But we're talking about before, before mm even the existence of things that science would be able to describe. I hope that's helpful. These are abstract ideas. So yeah. I did my best there. <laughs> no, I think that is helpful. But so you've developed a lot of resources, helping people to understand the relationship between science and faith. You've got a few books and working on, uh, you have your courses that you teach, you're working on also some other courses that we'll talk about in a little bit. I'm excited to hear about. Um, and it's all about trying to help Christians understand how science, even modern science, and their faith are compatible. They can go together, and not just that, they can complement each other and benefit one another. Before we talk about your defense, what is the argument that you are working against? You know, So the argument that says science and faith are not compatible, can you summarize that argument before we start with what your defense is? Oh, sure. Um, so um, I would say that one, not the only, but one of the central questions that I tackle is, uh, can are we, as Christians, embracing the central tenets of our faith, are we in a position that we have to deny any well-established findings of science or reject the methods of science? Uh, and my answer to that is no, not at all, that we can be uh, Orthodox Christians and excellent practitioners of science. Mm. And so whenever the atheist says that uh, you cannot be someone who believes in God and also believes in science, like, wh why do they make a statement like that? What, is, uh, what, what are they saying about the nature of believing in science and what the nature of faith is that they cannot go together? Well, often they're defining faith in a very strange way, not in the classical Christian sense of the word. They're referring more to something like belief with no good reason, or what we sometimes refer to um, in theology as fideism. And as Christians, we have an informed faith. A better description would be... Um, belief with good reasons to believe. Now, we could have very long conversations about what constitutes good reasons for belief, but but again, we're not talking about just blind belief, not belief despite the utter lack of any supporting evidence. Uh, and so 
it comes down to really a problem of, to use a very fancy philosophical term, epistemology. Uh, so if you have the naturalist uh, misconstruing the idea of faith and and having an epistemology, this science of knowledge, uh, to give a short little definition there, that when we believe something, we need to have excellent reasons to believe it. They would often... Uh, use the word evidence. We have to have empirical evidence in order to rationally believe the things that we believe. Um, then they're essentially ruling out the Christian faith by defining it the way that they do. Whereas if they would better understand the classical definition of faith, belief with good reasons, um, then um, it would make much more sense to them, I think, um, if they're willing to be open-minded in that regard, it would make much more sense to them to have this project of asking, well, how do we harmonize the tenets of the Christian faith and um, the best findings of the natural sciences? Um, and so the Christian, the Christian has, to use a phrase I used earlier, a much larger tool chest because we can look at the universe around us and we can be open to the idea that it's not a closed system, that there is a mind that transcends our universe and a mind that can intervene in our universe. And that's, again, it goes back to that conversation we had earlier about the philosophical presuppositions. If you're open to that, then um, you have this wonderful project of harmonization that you can tackle, whereas the naturalist just being utterly uh, convinced, I guess, that it's, it is a closed system and that there is nothing but matter in motion, um, then they consider the idea of a creator who intervenes and who is concerned with the affairs of man um, to be something that's just entirely out of the question. Yeah, so once again, it seems as though in this debate, uh, once uh, again and again, it goes back to the level of assumptions. What do you yeah. assume about the, what science is, what it can do, what it cannot do? What do you assume about the nature of our universe? Like you, the the last thing you said about is it closed or not? And f for our guests, uh, I mean, for our audience, uh, that means you know, is, is it closed off from any divine? Is it closed off from any uh, transcendent source of uh, whether that be a you know, even a mystical power or, or a personal God, um, a closed system of cause and effect. Uh, and then bad assumptions about what faith is and what it means as well. And so we have to go down to those levels to get this conversation right. You've done a lot of work on getting this conversation right. One of those is your book uh, called Science and the Mind of the Maker. And there you show people how to reconcile science and faith together. So can you tell us, through your book such as that one, how do you bring the relationship between science and the Christian faith together? And can you give some examples of how uh, they can not just be reconciled, but actually complement one another and strengthen one another? Oh, yeah, sure. So one of the things that I harp on a lot in both my writing and my teaching at, with my students at Colorado Christian is what I like to call a mere creation philosophy. 
And what I mean by that, and for those of your listeners who are C.S. Lewis fans and who have read Mere Christianity, they probably have an inkling of what I mean by that. And to better explain, I am convinced that an effective scientific apologetic or an apologetic that uses scientific evidence for support focuses on the very central questions. So the existence of God, the nature of a human being. Do we have immaterial souls or do we not? Um, Is there a creator or not? Rather than getting really bogged down in secondary issues that just seem to lead to perpetual argumentation, things like the age of the earth, the extent to which there has been any biological common descent, things of that nature. So again, mirror creation, focusing on the central question of a creator, the nature of man and what our relationship is to that creator, to the extent that we can say something about it before looking at special revelation in scripture. And so... Starting from this mirror creation perspective, I think it's incredibly helpful to look at a diversity of natural science fields, such as biochemistry, cosmology, uh, the neurosciences, and see what kind of evidence is there that we can draw positive implications for theism from. William Lane Craig has a really marvelous way of of putting the situation for this branch of apologetics. He says, it is not that we're using scientific evidence to argue for the existence of God. What we're doing is we're using science in support of philosophical premises in arguments for the existence of God. And so um, science is an incredibly powerful resource for us in this regard, uh, but it would be mistaken to say science proves God, or um, we have scientific evidence for the existence of God. You're leaving out a very crucial middle step there. So that's another point that I, I try to really drive home with my readers and my students. So then we have evidence coming from all these different branches of the natural sciences that we can look at um, in individual cases, but then we can also look at collectively, which I think is an especially interesting project. The great G.K. Chesterton, who was one of the main influences on the thinking of C.S. Lewis, he said, it is when we have such a diversity of evidence rather than the same amount of evidence all coming from the same field um, that makes our case that much more powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think he's exactly right about that. If we only had some evidence, say, in biochemistry um, that we could base a decent philosophical argument on, That'd be, no, that'd be nice, that'd be something. But the fact that we also see a powerful um, evidence in other fields that can be used in theistic arguments, I think that's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So your mere creation argument, it sounds similar to uh, what others would 
describe as an ar- just a basic argument for intelligent design. Is, is that correct, or is there a difference between what you're arguing and and just you know arguing for intelligent design? Um, it really depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> in terms of how you're defining intelligent design. So I would say that I'm going a bit beyond that. So when we talk about using science and apologetics, that doesn't get us all the way to Christian theism, right? Uh, We're arguing for the existence of a creator, but I think we can go a huge, important step beyond just the existence of a creator. I think that we can use certain branches of the sciences and even the very existence of science itself to make an excellent argument that not only is there a creator, but by our nature as rational human beings, there is something about us that must have an intellectual kinship with that creator. So that strongly suggests the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei or being made in the image of God. Mm, Interesting. So can you explain one of those arguments that you mentioned, uh, making a scientific argument that leads specifically to the Christian God? Well, it doesn't get you all the way there. Um, As I said, it doesn't get us all the way to full-blown Christianity. But I do think we get another step in that direction from just mere theism. Um, And that is the topic of my latest book, Thinking God's Thoughts. Uh, And the subtitle is Johannes Kepler and the Miracle of Cosmic Comprehensibility. And that book is where I really dive deep on this very topic. And to sum it up very briefly, it is the argument that because we have a rational, a mathematically structured universe, and we as human beings have the cognitive equipment to do the kinds of advanced mathematics that are required to unlock so many of the secrets of nature that have led to massive progress in the sciences and in technology, um, we can say something very powerful about what kind of creatures we are and how our minds had to originate with the same mind that is behind the universe as a whole. Mm. Um, and, of course, I could go on the book swell over 300 pages long. So uh, your listeners will have to read it to get all the juicy details on that. Yeah, certainly. Well, to get all the details, because we won't be able to get into all those in a 45-minute <laughs> podcast. But, uh, yeah, I was wanting to get into Kepler. So that's a perfect transition. Remind us of who... Kepler was and why he's significant in the history of science. Uh, sure, sure, sure. Okay, so Johannes <laughs> I figured you'd be excited was... about that one. I know, I know you love Kepler. <laughs> I do love him very much. That's my cat's name, by the way. I should have brought him in here so everybody could see him. Okay, Johannes Kepler was one of the giants of the scientific revolution, and I would even argue he was the most important figure of the scientific revolution. He was a Protestant Lutheran Christian at a time when it was extraordinarily difficult to be a Protestant, namely the Counter-Reformation. And not only that, but he was starting in his university career, he was a Copernican, meaning he had begun to strongly suspect that 
a heliocentric universe was true and that the geocentric model that had reigned for many, many centuries was actually incorrect. So he was, uh, he was a Protestant um, in the area that we refer to now as Germany. And then he also spent a lot of time in Prague and this was simultaneous with Galileo and his famous affair mm. over in Italy when he got in lots and lots of trouble with the Roman Catholic Inquisition for his views on heliocentrism. But what was so significant about Kepler and why I regard him as the most important figure of um of that part of the scientific revolution uh, to remind everybody of the timeline here. This was before the birth of Isaac Newton. So of course we can argue that Newton was the culmination of this massive revolution. So here we have Kepler and what was so important about him was this revolutionary way in which he applied mathematical systems to the movements of the heavenly spheres. So instead of it being um, based on observation and forcing observations to fit preconceived philosophical models, such as perfectly circular planetary orbits, he instead took the whole catalog of observations that were available to him at the time, and he started applying mathematical theory to figure out, well, how can we make our, um, how can we make our predictive accuracy of our models much better than they are? And he discovered things like the first law of planetary motion, which says no planets don't orbit the sun in perfect circles. They orbit in ellipses, which are sort of like squashed circles mm. or ovals. And from there, he developed his second and third laws of planetary motion and essentially um, brought about the first celestial physics. And it was that groundwork that was essential to what Sir Isaac Newton did several decades later. So he, Kepler was very much this transitional figure, and it was all about um, the mathematics employed. And so we have a man who said that when we do the natural sciences, we are sharing in God's own thoughts. And what he meant by that was, when we examine nature and we start to extract out these mathematical patterns and discover the mathematical laws by which things are operating around us, we're seeing the archetype or the preconceived blueprints in the mind of God for the creation. So an archetype in the mind of God was made manifest in the physical stuff of the world mm. and was made manifest also in the very mind of human beings. And so it's with our mind that we observe the, the copy of the archetype that resides in the mind of God. And this was very much a culmination of a very long philosophical and theological history that I describe in the first third of the book. Um, and it all seemed to come together in the mind of Johannes Kepler. And I argue that 
in our contemporary conversation, we would do very well to consider why Kepler, as one of the greatest scientific minds in history, was also such a thoroughly devout Christian and how his science intensified his devotion to the creator. Um, He said that uh, natural philosophers, which is what they were called um, then rather than scientists, said that natural philosophers are priests in God's grand cosmic temple and Mm. that when they're studying nature, they're actually worshiping God. He, I mean, he his prayers that are sprinkled throughout his written treatises are just marvelous and moving. And uh, it was once said that once you once um, a scholar enters the orbit of Johannes Kepler through their studies, you never escape because he had this magnetic mind. Um, no pun intended, but it's just to to read of his personal devotion and his passion for astronomy. It's just captivating. And I don't know why more people don't study him. I feel like this lone person on the island of Kepler a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So he was a smart guy. Smart guy. He was a smart guy. That's, that's what I'm picking up. Uh, yeah, you know, there's they, they say that there's the people who are more drawn and take easier to like the math and sciences and then the history and English people. And I'm definitely one of the history and English people. Science has never been my strong suit, so I'm doing my best to keep up here. I'm just trying to figure out how how did Kepler use math to figure out like the movement of planets in the solar system and so on? Is he is he like coming up with a formula that he thinks is right and then he's making observations to test it and then you know i'm still struggling to wrap my mind around how do you how do you use math to track the movement of planets and so on i'm how how does that work out you know once again if you're uh explaining it to someone who struggles to follow these uh types of subjects right right so there's not a short answer to that. And in Kepler's case, it was somewhat bizarre, actually, because Kepler, Kepler actually inherited this giant, uh, unprecedented catalog of astronomical observations from Tycho Brahe. So he was um, the royal astronomer in Prague who invited Kepler to come and be his assistant. Well, Kepler was only his assistant for about 10 months before Brahe died of a bladder infection. So Kepler inherits this massive unparalleled volume of astronomical observation, um, the most accurate that existed anywhere um, to our knowledge. Uh, And so uh, applying geometry to what was already cataloged um, would really not be any sort of huge feat, right? Um, It was rather extrapolating from what had been already measured to being able to say something about the mathematics of the movements. Um, So that was very much what Kepler was concerned with. 
Now, what what I said earlier about how his path to his breakthroughs was, was rather bizarre was because Kepler started approaching questions such as, why are there this many planets? Why is there this much distance in between the orbits of each of the planets going away from us, etc.? And he decided early on that it would be really remarkably beautiful if what God had had in mind when he created this system was a set of geometrical shapes known as the platonic solids. So if anybody listening knows about the platonic solids, um, these are the five shapes that have all congruent faces and are also um, convex shapes. So things like the cube and the tetrahedron and the icosahedron and the dodecahedron. So Kepler's idea was that if we took all of those platonic solids and we nested them inside of each other, you get a varying amount of space when you encircle each one within a sphere. So if you've ever seen a set of those Russian nesting dolls, um, his idea was, okay, we start with uh, one of the solids and we put a sphere around it. And then we add another one of the solids and put another sphere around that. And so it would um, automatically limit how much, how large each successive sphere was to a varying amount. And he thought, this is of course what God had in mind and how wonderful that we have, um, we've unlocked this wonderful mystical secret of God's plan, if you will, the archetype for the planetary orbits. Well, he worked on that and worked on that and worked on that and desperately tried to save it, but it turned out to not be true. The interesting thing about that, though, was that because he was pursuing this wrong mathematical path, he ended up discovering the correct ones. Uh, and so it's often said by Kepler scholars that he may have uh, he may have been this sort of romantic uh, mystic about it in the beginning, but it's the only path that could have gotten him to what he actually did achieve in the end at the time that he accomplished it. It wouldn't have been until much later when our telescopic technology had greatly improved would someone have been able to do what Kepler did with just pencil, paper, and a catalog of observations. Again, such a remarkable mind. Um, and it should be said that although he started with these uh, sort of strange geometrical presuppositions about how he thought God built the universe, he was eventually willing to let it go and accept uh, what turned out to actually be the correct mathematical model. Uh, and he praised God all the more for that. Mm. And it, uh, in one of his treatises, he actually goes on at great length about this. And he says something, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something to the effect of um, the, the true answer to the, to the geometry of the universe 
is far more spectacular than I had conceived before. Uh, so um, he just, he, the mind of God just enraptured him. And so the more of the mathematics he worked out, again, the more he believed he was sharing in the very thoughts of the creator. Mm. And so to bring this back to our initial conversation, what can we take away from Kepler's life and work that helps us understand the relationship between science and faith? Well, um, one of the big things is understanding that a rational cosmos points to a transcendent rationality, points to rationality or mind being the the fundamental reality, not just the matter that things are made up from. Um, and also his deep conviction that progress that discoveries in what we now call the natural sciences give us more and more and more reason to marvel at the wisdom and power of God, that there would never be an inherent conflict between uh, Christianity, the central tenets of Christianity, and what we discover about the things God has made. He wasn't at all troubled by the fact that there was uh, an interpretation of scripture at the time that seemed to be intention. He's like, oh, well, of course, the truths that God has revealed in the natural world need to be considered when we're learning how to understand his word. So he did not see any conflict there at all. Maybe some work to do, but not conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to also give credit where credit is due, Galileo felt the same way. And if any of your listeners are interested, you can read a famous letter online for free. And it was the letter that Galileo wrote to the Grand Duchess Christina. And he unpacks this at length. And it's a really beautiful piece of writing, but also gives you a lot to think about in terms of our personal philosophy of um, to what extent do we use God's natural revelation to illuminate our understanding of his special revelation and vice versa. Mm. So let's say someone's listening to this and they've been you know, encouraged uh, in, in hearing all that you've had to say uh, and maybe even inspired um, as they've been struggling to reconcile scientific knowledge with their Christian beliefs and they've been, you know, wrestling with, um, with this conversation and debate, what advice would you give to them that you hope they take away from this and that they would, uh, maybe do after listening to this interview? Well, the first thing I would say is don't buy into the pop culture talking points about science and faith because they are across the board, typically completely wrong. <laughs> So don't don't just take the pop culture word for it. Uh, and I would also say every Christian, whether you have a science background or not, you need to have some basic knowledge in this area of the harmonization of science and faith. And the first place I usually point people is a wonderful little short book by Dr. John Lennox entitled 
can science explain everything? That's an, a really wonderful starting point. And I would even say if you only ever read one book on this subject, that would be a wonderful choice. Uh, my book, Science in the Mind of the Maker, expands in the different areas a little bit more, but is still a popular level book. This sort of helps you cover a lot of base, bases uh, in under 300 pages. Um, and so those would be my two encouragements. Don't buy into the popular narrative. Uh, you know, do some reading for yourself and become at least basically conversant in the various topics that are related to the science and faith conversation. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to have uh, both of your books that we talked about um, linked in the show notes below so that if anybody is wanting to pick up a copy of your books to um, to learn and uh, and benefit from them or maybe pick up a copy to share with someone else, uh, that'll be linked below. So make sure that you guys check that out. Uh, aside from the, bo the books you've done, you were telling me a little while ago about uh, an upcoming course that you can be releasing for the Discovery Institute. Can you tell us about that real quickly before we go? Yes, that's right. So Discovery Institute currently has a learning platform called Discovery U. And right now it has some wonderful automated courses that you can go and watch video lectures and take quizzes and learn a lot of really excellent basics about intelligent design and the way, uh, the way it's related to some of the different fields in the natural sciences. But we're launching a pilot late this summer and it will be fully interactive course content. So instead of watching videos and taking automated quizzes, this will be me actually teaching in real time over Zoom at to a limited class size of students. And we're gonna cover in this first pilot class the historical side of the science and faith conversation. So a historical perspective on how Christianity and the natural sciences have interacted throughout history. And during that course, I'll dispel a lot of historical myths surrounding this interaction that seem to be at the root of a lot of false narrative in the contemporary culture. So we're very hopeful that this first six-week pilot will be popular and will uh, give us the impetus that we need to develop more courses that are, as I said, live and interactive um, rather than uh, just the uh, the asynchronous pre-recorded classes that are already available. So I'm excited about yeah. it. I think it'll be really fun. I'm all about live teaching, not not pre-recorded material. That's my learning style. And I know there must be a lot of others out there who also want real life mentoring when it comes to these topics. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to hear about it and look forward to seeing it come out. Um, what's the best way for people to... Um, be in the know uh, for when that releases and how to get signed up for it whenever it comes out. So I will have some information on my personal website, which is melissacanetravis.com, but you can also follow me on my Instagram or my Twitter account where I will have up-to-date news as the time gets closer. We do anticipate opening registration for the pilot class right after Easter. So right now we're working on getting all the ducks in a row for the marketing materials, and then we'll officially open the portal um, again, right after Easter. 
Awesome. Well, if any of you guys are interested in that, make sure that you go follow Melissa's um, social media platforms and her website. I'll be sure to include those links in the show notes as well. So you can click on the link below to go to the show notes and uh, follow her website or her Instagram or Twitter, where she'll be sharing that info and uh, about the class that sounds awesome. And so I'm excited to hear about it. Well, uh, this was a great conversation. Uh, it was, it was fascinating. It uh, mentally wore me out. Like I said, science is not my forte. So, uh, but I enjoyed it. It was really great. So, uh, Melissa, thank you so much for the work you've done, the work you're doing, and for taking the time to be with us on Filter today. Sure. My pleasure. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up with the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the A.